Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Happy Father's Day. Are you serious? Nobody's going to say Happy Father's Day to me? Guys, come on, we got to do better than this today. It's not going to be that kind of day, is it? Let's try again. Happy Father's Day. Very good. You know, Jerry Seinfeld says that you can always tell what were the best years in a dad's life because they tend to kind of freeze that clothing style from those years and just ride it out for the rest of their lives. And so looking out, I can tell the 90s were really good to you guys. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Come on. We got to have better than this, you guys. We got we to gotta work together today, okay? Happy Father's Day. I am thankful today because I'm a young dad. I'm just starting out my journey, and there's a lot of us young dads in this church, and we're kind of long on energy and kind of short on wisdom And I'm grateful for many of you who've been down the road several miles ahead of us, and you're willing to invest in our lives enough to show us the way. So I am just grateful to be part of that kind of church. We're going to dive into God's word today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, like Steve said, that we get to call you Father, that we get to be your children. Wow, what a blessing. How amazing is that? And you are a good and perfect father, always present, always dependable. You always do what you say you're gonna do. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we ask that for those of us whom you've entrusted us the task of pouring into those who are coming behind, which applies to every person in this room, we ask that we would love them in such a way that when they do call you father, they would have a better idea of what kind of father you are based on how we've loved them. Help us in that. We fall so far short and we need your grace And Jesus, today, as we open your word together, we ask that you would speak, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts willing to obey. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, as you guys know, we've been in Luke chapter 10 together for the last few weeks, and today we're wrapping up our series called The Art of Neighboring. And we've been walking through this chapter with eight of our sister churches trying to figure out how do we live out the two greatest commandments in Scripture. Number one, love God, and number two, love people. And if you're anything like me, when confronted with this challenge to love your neighbor, it can be a little bit scary, can't it? And so today, I just want to wrap up the series by hitting some of those core fears that uh, that we have to face head on as we learn how to love our neighbor. And for me, oftentimes they sound in my head like what if. Like those, the fears generally begin with what if. So I want to hit four of the core what ifs today that stand in the way of us really loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus tells us a story here in Luke chapter 10 that hits the heart of what it means to face those fears and to become the kind of neighbor that Jesus wants us to be. So let's look together. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. Jesus has an encounter says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, pause right here, because at this point, this religious expert should have just owned up to his fear. He should have just been honest. He should have just said, wow, Jesus, you're right. I know the answer, but I have a lot of trouble living this out. Could you help me? But that's not what he says, is it? Look at verse 29. 
says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, all right, Jesus, I'm cool with loving God and I'm cool with loving the people that I like, but, but who exactly is, is my neighbor? Like, where do I get to draw the line? Who do I actually have to love and who can I kind of let go? And, and Jesus answers by telling a story. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, to this day, Jerusalem is much higher in elevation than the city of Jericho. And so between these two cities, there's a 17-mile road that drops 4,000 feet in elevation. It goes down. It's a very steep road. And on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a whole lot of cliffs and caves and curves, really good for robbers to hide in. And so much so that this road was known as the Pass of Blood. And so Jesus tells a story about this traveler who's walking the Pass of Blood when he gets jumped and beaten and stripped and abandoned in the wilderness, and it looks like that's all she wrote. Game over, story over, you're toast, this is it. But wait, the story goes on. Maybe there is hope after all. Verse 31, Jesus says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now imagine for a moment that this is you. Imagine with me that you have been beaten within an inch of your life and that you think this is it, you're gonna die, game over, but then all of a sudden you hear footsteps and you muster all of your strength and you open your eyes and lo and behold, who's coming along the road? But it's a priest. It's a Jewish good guy, a hero of the story, the best of the best. Yes, finally there's hope. Except the priest takes one look at you, kind of scoots over to the side of the road and walks right on by. Ah. But a little while later, you hear some more footsteps and you open your eyes again and it's, it's, it's a Levite. Now, Levites were kind of like assistants to the priest. It's kind of like an associate pastor. You know, they're, they're not the real thing and they're not nearly as cool as the senior minister, but in a pinch, they might do, you know? But the Levite too walks right on by. But then you hear more footsteps. Verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan as he traveled, came to where the man was. Now, if you're sitting in the Jewish audience listening to Jesus tell this story, at this point you're thinking, uh-oh, not good. Because to the Jews, Samaritans were the bad guys. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan. That is an oxymoron. So when a Samaritan shows up on the scene of this story, the original listeners would have been bracing for the worst. And listen to what Jesus says, verses 33 through 37. He says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him... He took pity on him. He went to him and, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied. Notice, he can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He says, ah, the, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus replied, go and do likewise. Now, on our ears, we're kind of familiar with this story, so we've lost the shock factor 
But in this shocking turn of events to the original audience, it's the Samaritan, the bad guy, who's the hero of this story, which begs the question then, why didn't the priest and the Levite help out first? The text says that the priest was going down the road. We can infer then that the priest was most likely leaving Jerusalem, going downhill toward Jericho. And if the priest is leaving Jerusalem, we can also assume that means he probably just got done serving at the temple. He's going home from church. When he sees a body lying in the ditch in a pool of blood. So why doesn't he get off his donkey and help this guy? Because this priest, he knew God's word. He knew God's law. That in Leviticus chapter 19, God says to help those in need, even the foreigners in the land. This priest knew Exodus chapter 23, where, where God says to help your enemy if your enemy's donkey is in the ditch. That's not even a human being, but you're supposed to help even your enemy if their donkey's in the ditch. This priest, he knew the words of the prophet Hosea, that God desires mercy more than even the sacrifices he just got done offering at the temple. This priest, he knew the words of the prophet Micah that what does God desire of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He knew the right thing to do. He had those verses highlighted in his Bible. So why didn't he get off his donkey and into the ditch? Now, you quiet your self-righteous little mind and I'll quiet mine right now, okay? Before we judge this guy too harshly, let's take a look in the mirror and let's admit that sometimes we think like this, don't we? We play these mental games, maybe. Maybe like the priest did to justify his inactivity. Wonder what that priest was thinking. Maybe he's looking at the guy thinking, ah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, they, they, they took his clothes, they stripped him, he's knocked out cold. If I can't see how he dresses and how he talks, how am I gonna know if he's one of us or one of them? And what if he's one of them? And, and, and in fact, look at the guy. I mean, he, he probably did something to deserve this. Why was he walking down this road by himself anyway? That was pretty dumb. He, he probably got what he had coming to him. He earned it. Or, 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 or let's say, say I did help him. What if I helped the guy and he dies in my arms? Well, then I'm touching a corpse and I'd be ritually unclean and I'd have to go through all those purification rituals and that would be terribly inconvenient. I just don't have time for it right now. Plus, I just got done serving at the temple and I'm ready to go home. I'm tired. I'm just ready to see my family. And, and, and what, if, what if this is a trap? What if the guy is lying right there as bait and the robbers are still somewhere around and I'm gonna be next? Besides, I'm not a paramedic. I'm just a priest. And so the priest rides on. Am I the only one who plays mental games like that sometimes? Maybe we've done that even. Maybe you've heard this series on how to be a good neighbor. And as you've heard these challenges, you've tried to justify yourself about why it doesn't apply to you, why we don't have to do this. <laughs> and often, at least in my head, those reasons start with what if. So could I give you four of the big what ifs that I think stand in the way sometimes of us getting off our donkey and into the ditch? Here's the first one. What if I'm not good at hospitality? What, what if I'm not good at hospitality? You might think, hey, I'm, I'm not outgoing. I'm not some clever, engaging conversationalist. I'm, not just, I'm just not good at hospitality. And, and I get that. I, I am introverted by nature. I recharge my emotional batteries by being alone. Now, I love people. I do. But more often than not, by the end of the day, when I'm driving home, my emotional tank is on empty. I am just peopled out. And so when I pull into the driveway, a man's home is his castle, and all I want to do is just pull up the drawbridge behind me and have some alone time. And yet, 
God, in his wonderful sense of humor, has gifted me with a beautifully extroverted wife with the gift of hospitality. <laughs> and so I'm learning. She's helping me. But you might think this, like, what if I'm not good at hospitality? What if I'm not one of those extroverted center of the party kind of people? Maybe you think I'm not a good enough cook. I don't have a nice enough house. And I get that too. I would love to stand up here and tell you today that our house is this pristine and spotless refuge of serenity, an oasis of peace in an ocean of chaos. <laughs> but that would be lying. More days than not, our house is crazy. And you guys know this, trying to clean the house with little kids around is like shoveling in a, a snowstorm. You just never quite get there. And I just have to admit some days that we don't live in a museum. We live in a workshop. And we're building people in here. <laughs> and workshops can be a little messy. But you're welcome to come in and pull up a chair and grab a paper plate if you want to. And, and, and you might think this, what if I'm not good at hospitality? Listen, you may not feel like you're the hostess with the mostess. You may not like being the center of attention. You may not feel like you know all the right questions to ask. You may not feel like you can stand up here and preach a sermon or have a, give a theology lecture or lead a ministry organization. But listen to me, listen to me. Do you have a front door? Do you have a table and chairs? Do you have some bread and some lunch meat? Can you boil water for macaroni? I can. <laughs> Do you have two ears for listening? Then congratulations, my friend. You are qualified to serve in the ministry of hospitality. What if I'm not good at hospitality? Next one I think is this. What if we don't have anything in common? Because sometimes, you know, your neighbors are just different. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's what makes biblical hospitality so compelling. You might remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the Bible word for hospitality in Greek is philozenia. Say that with me. Say philozenia. Very good. And that's made up of the combination of two Greek words, philos meaning love and xenos meaning stranger. So biblical hospitality is quite literally love for the stranger. Now, I don't know about you, but love for the stranger is not my natural inclination. My natural inclination is not philozenia, it's xenophobia fear of the stranger. And yet the call as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is philozenia. We are called to love the stranger. And this is radically countercultural because we're living in an increasingly fractured and polarized society where we exist in these little echo chambers of people who think like us. And it kind of pulls us off into sects and factions of, of us versus them. And we are scared and skeptical of those who think differently than we do. And yet the call of biblical hospitality is not merely a call to hang out more often with the people that we like. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. What if we don't have anything in common? Seems like a good opportunity to me. What if I'm not good at hospitality? What if we don't have anything in common? What if, what if I don't know what to say? That's number three. What if I don't know what to say? Earlier in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent 72 of his followers out on a mission to go to the surrounding towns and just to tell people what Jesus had been up to. And what I love about what Jesus does here is he doesn't send skilled prophets or trained public speakers or powerful kings or educated rabbis. He sends ordinary people, fishermen, carpenters, farmers. And the mission is to go to people's houses and to sit down and eat with them and to tell them about what Jesus has been up to. And that's our mission too. And a lot of the time, we can be hesitant about that mission because a lot of the time, we're hesitant to build relationships with unbelievers and to talk about our faith because we're scared of being asked two or three questions that we don't know the answer to, right? 
and we just feel like we don't know what to say. But here's the thing. When someone enters your home, they're not looking for textbook answers. At one time, there was a survey done that asked Americans what words they most liked to hear. And rather predictably, the top answer was, I love you. The second place answer was, I forgive you. And I love this. The third place answer was, supper's ready. That's pretty good. You know, when people come to your home, they're not looking for a sales pitch. They're looking for a place to belong, a place where someone will listen to them. And then when the time is right, a place where someone will say to them, hey, you're loved and you're forgiven. And oh, by the way, supper's ready. Because think about it, right? Telemarketers have all the right answers, don't they? Any question you ever ask a telemarketer, they've got an answer for you. But the reason that we all hang up on telemarketers is that they don't listen. God is not calling you to be a telemarketer for Christianity. He's calling you to be a good neighbor. And if by chance you are asked a question that you don't know how to answer, it's as simple as saying, man, that's a great question. Let's find out together. And you come talk to one of us and we would love, sincerely love to walk with you through that. What if I'm not good at hospitality? What if we don't have anything in common? What if I don't know what to say? And here's number four. What if it costs a lot? And that's a valid concern. Because to love his neighbor costs this Samaritan a lot. He probably gave the shirt off his back to make those bandages. He poured out perfectly good oil and wine to dress those wounds. It cost him a, a night's stay in a motel and a couple days wages after that to make sure this fellow was gonna be well taken care of. And when you choose to love your neighbor as yourself, it will be costly. It might mean that your house is a mess and your couch gets stained and your phone rings in the middle of the night and your savings account is a little bit thinner and you're a little more tired at the end of the day and you spend a little less time on your hobbies and a little more time with messy people because love is nice in theory. But when love gets specific, when love means loving your neighbor, it gets messy and it gets costly. And so you might just have to, ahead of time, like schedule loving your neighbor into your calendar three weeks ahead of time. You might have to make a, a love your neighbor budget. You might have to make a commitment ahead of time not to whine about how much it costs. I think that's why Peter had to write to the early church in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, where he said, I love this, he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> There's a clue that probably the first century church dealt with the same things we do. That Peter probably had to remind the early church, hey, listen, don't grumble when they forget to wipe their sandals at the door and forget to use a coaster when they drink or they accidentally cuss around your kids or they leave more dirty dishes in the sink. Yeah, that's a cost, but it's a cost that we can pay because it pales in comparison to the cost that Jesus paid for us. So here's my challenge for you, church. I know with this neighboring series, you've got some what ifs going on in your head, but here's my challenge for you. Move from what if to whatever it takes. Move from what if to whatever it takes. Because you can make an excuse or you can make an impact, but you can't do both. So move from what if to whatever it takes. And I want us to become a church that says whatever it takes, whatever it takes, anything short of sin to love our neighbor like Jesus has loved us. I heard a story of a Chinese fighter pilot by the name of Art Chen. 
And back in the 1930s, when China was at war with Japan, one day in an aerial battle, Art Chen took on three Japanese fighter planes single-handedly. And he managed to shoot the first one down, and then he ran out of ammunition. And so in this feat of insane bravery, Art Chen rammed his plane into the other plane, jumping out at the last minute and parachuting back to Earth. And after this, he landed, he walked over to where the wreckage of his plane was and managed to salvage the heavy machine gun from the wreckage. And he hoisted this heavy gun on his shoulders and marched eight miles back to base where he dropped this heavy gun at the feet of his commanding officer, thunk. And he said, sir, can I have a new plane for my machine gun? (laughs) I love that. And I want that to be us. Yeah, sure, there's some things standing in the way. There's some hurdles we gotta climb, but no what-ifs. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We're gonna do whatever it takes. I have a preacher friend in Kentucky who challenged his church one time to love the people around them creatively. And so there's this little six-year-old girl named Julie who decided to bake some brownies. So she baked some brownies and she took them to the campus of the local college there in town and she camped out in front of the library. And so she would give out free brownies to the students who went into the library. And as she's doing this, one Muslim student stopped and asked her, why are you giving free brownies to total strangers? And a little six-year-old Julie stuck her hand on her hip. She said, because Jesus wants me to, duh. And little did she know that this Muslim student had been wrestling with his faith for two years, and he was just absolutely dumbfounded by her response. And so he asked her, can I come to church with you? And little six-year-old Julie said, sure, without consulting her parents. (laughs) But here's the best part. Instead of bringing this PhD student to the big room with all the adults, she took him to the kids' ministry, and he sat on the floor with all the other six-year-olds, And he heard the stories of Jesus. And this went on for months. And eventually he decided to take a stand. And he was baptized. And his family told him that if they ever saw him again, they'd kill him. But it's okay. He's safe now because he's saved. He's in the family of God. All because a little six-year-old girl named Julie decided to partner with Betty Crocker and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And she said, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Here's the challenge for you, church. If you haven't gotten one of these little neighborhood grids yet, we've been doing this all month, grab one on your way out and fill it out. This little logo in the middle, this represents your house. The boxes around it represent the houses of your neighbors. Write their names in there. Let that remind you to build a relationship with them. Let that remind you to pray with them. That's challenge number one. The challenge from last week was to take a prayer walk. Grab your friends, grab your family, whatever you gotta do. Take a prayer walk around your neighborhood. Ask God to bless your neighbors, to give you opportunities to love them. Take a prayer walk, make that a habit as a family. And then the third challenge, here's the challenge for you this week. Share food with your neighbor. Somehow, some way, do it soon. And ideally, do it in a way where you eat together with them. Have them over, do something. Eat in a way that you're able to have a conversation and build a relationship. And I know there's some what ifs going through your head right now, but we're gonna be a church that says whatever it takes. And ultimately, that's not because we just wanna be nicer people. It's because this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus didn't say what if. He didn't say, ah, what if they don't listen to me? What if they don't believe? What if they kill me? He did whatever it took. And you know, in, in this story of the Good Samaritan I'm not the priest. No, I'm not the Levite. 
I'm definitely not the good Samaritan. I'm that guy in the ditch on the side of the road. That's my story. And the good Samaritan, that's Jesus. This is your story, this is my story too, that I was lost, that we were stuck and hopeless. We were beaten and bloodied by our own sinful choices. We were left on the side of the road, half dead, totally helpless, unable to save ourselves. I'm not the good Samaritan. I'm the bleeding man. I'm that body lying in a pool of blood, desperate for somebody to save me. And God, God could have walked right on by. He didn't have to help me. I rebelled against him. I was his enemy. God could have set up some limits on who was his neighbor. He could have set up some limits on just how far his love would go. But the amazing thing is that Jesus saw me lying there in a pool of my own blood, in a mess of my own making, and he did not walk on by. He didn't stay on his side of the street and rush by in a hurry with a hard heart. He crossed over to my side of the street. He crossed over to your side of the street. Jesus Christ crossed the vast chasm of eternity and he stepped down into time from heaven to earth and he got down in the ditch with us. And he willingly went to the cross where he was the one who was willingly beaten and bloodied and murdered so that he could pay every price, he could pay every debt at great cost to himself, knowing that we could never repay him. And he bandaged our wounds And he was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. And he threw us over his shoulder and he carried us all the way home, all the way to the Father's house. And now he's saying that this, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. 1 John 3, 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Whatever it takes, church. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us so perfectly. Thank you for seeing me and all of my mess, all my sin and all my failure. Thank you for seeing us even now and all of our all of our fear all the ways we try to justify ourselves to stop from obeying this command. Thank you for your grace. Empower us now and give us opportunity to love as you have loved us. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.